Well, good morning, friends. Glad to see you all on this holy Wednesday. Sorry we had a little bit of technical trouble there at the beginning. Um, I hope that you all have found this stream and we can get rolling with today's lesson on chapter 17 of Revelation. So today's chapter 17 is definitely an interesting one. We are moving into a period of Revelation that is intense and that intensity is is you know also going to be intense when it comes to our language. And so, just fair warning, today's lesson is a little kind of rated mature. And so, if in case you watch this with a young person um, or listen to this with a young person, I just want to give you fair warning that although I will be as gentle as possible, there will be a few, you know, mature topics that come up in today's lesson. And so just fair warning, nice little caveat. If I had it, I would put TVMA up in the corner of today's lesson. So for those of you who read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. Um, A little housekeeping before we begin. I want to make sure you all know that we send out notes each week with reminders and schedules. And so I want you to join that list Visit stmichael.org slash rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study. You can get our schedule, let Meredith Rose know to add you to our email list, and just stick with us. We are going to go all the way through the first Wednesday of May. We don't have many lessons left, um, but the last lesson will be that first Wednesday of May. You can see the schedule on the website. Join us on anywhere you get podcasts if you search for Rector's Bible Study you'll be able to subscribe to this podcast and stick with us so that you can take us wherever you want, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, Finally, this is Holy Week, and I want to make sure that, you know, if you go to St. Michael, if you simply join us for Bible study but don't go to church here regularly, that we've got some excellent ways to engage in this great week together. Every night this week, starting Monday night, we have a different, unique liturgy that we stream live online at 7 p.m. Central Time. And so we began with the Women of the Cross, a wonderful way of telling the story of Christ through some of the women in Scripture. Last night we did the Liturgy of the Nails, which is an ancient liturgy that's rooted in some European, old British kind of worship. Tonight, we do Choral Tenebrae for Holy Week. It's going to be great. Um, I'll actually be in that service, so join me live tonight at 7 p.m. And then tomorrow, we begin the Paschal Triduum. That's a great church word that you should know, Triduum. There are lots of double letters in there. That's Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then Holy Saturday, the Easter Vigil, where we really do get right into the meat of Jesus's passion, beginning with the Last Supper, the washing of the feet, the arrest, and then we go into the crucifixion, the trial crucifixion, and then of course, the night on Saturday night with the Easter Vigil, we begin in darkness, we light a new fire, and the light has come back into the world as we celebrate Jesus's resurrection. It's a wonderful arc of liturgy. And then of course, Easter Sunday, we will begin in person outside on the west side of our field. Um, In the field, we've got a big event tent. Um, We did that for the first time for Palm Sunday. It was fantastic. Join us for our sunrise service, 6.30 a.m., because the sun rises during the service and it's beautiful. I will be there, join me in person for that, or online at 9 and 11. And then finally, we're going to have what we're calling Journey to Easter. Everybody can come. It's 1.30 to 3 o'clock where you will enter the school door and then go through the hallways as we tell the story of Jesus's resurrection and welcome you down the center aisle of the church filled with flowers. You can receive communion, a blessing, and then we'll have our professional photographers here where you can take wonderful portraits with your family, friends, loved ones in our garden where the flowers have all burst forth. It's going to be a great day. And so join us each night tonight. Oh, and for those of you who've got children at home, maybe grandchildren or children in your life, Good Friday at noon, we are streaming a service particularly for our preschool and elementary age students where we tell the story of the Stations of the Cross for children. We actually do sort of the whole of Holy Week 
in a nice little package. We talk about foot washing and the Last Supper. We do the stations. We try to tell the arc of the Passion story at an age-appropriate level in a nice tight hour that will help tee up Easter Sunday for your children. So all of that is great. For more information, visit stmichael.org slash holyweek. You can see all the streams there, all the information, times, places, and everything like that with descriptions. And I hope you will join us for that. Okay, lastly, bit of housekeeping before we pray. At the end of last week, I invited you all to consider what we might study together next year. I received a few suggestions, would love to receive more over these next few weeks. So as you consider what we do after Revelation, maybe what you're most interested in, a book or set of books or an idea that has always kind of uh, gotten you interested or you want to know more or maybe you've heard about, let me know. Send me an email, send Meredith an email, make a comment here in this thread if you're using social media and help us to crowdsource what our next study will be next year. And fingers crossed, we can actually do a hybrid both in person and online beginning in the fall. Cross your fingers. Okay, let's open with a prayer and we'll get started. Let us pray. Gracious God, in this holy week, we recognize the gift of love that you had offered each and every one of us. May we take time to pause, to reflect, to go deeply into the discipleship that we share, into the faith life we hope to have. And as we do so, fill us with your redeeming spirit. Inspire us in the work that we do to help bring about your kingdom here on earth. Gracious God, we ask that you hold all those who need your healing touch. Be present with them, work through the doctors, nurses, and loved ones who surround them and lift them up, that they may be brought to wholeness and healing once again. For those who are near the end of their life and for those we love and see no longer, We have faith in you, faith in love that passes all understanding, faith that this life is not all there is, and that even in death, our lives are not ended, but only changed, and that we live as one with you forever. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, chapter 17, here we go. Chapter 17, um gets at some messiness, which is really sort of an understatement because it's Revelation and Revelation's pretty much entirely messy. I will say though, this is a dense, difficult chapter. So if you read ahead and you thought, what in the world, you're not alone. We're going to try and parse this out as clearly as possible. Um, I do want to make a note that as we get into this, we will be speaking or I will be speaking in the language used in the New Revised Standard Version translation, which means I'm going to be talking about the woman and the beast. That woman is referred to in scripture and also within popular culture and other things as the whore of Babylon. This is some rough, aggressive, even just it's harsh language. And I will try to be as gentle as I can, but I also don't want to take away what is kind of sharp about this passage. Um, But as we get into it, I want to note that it's, you know, it's fortunate that the language can be gendered and in some of the wrong ways. So as we talk about the beast, which is sort of the male and the woman as the female, that the whore of Babylon, um, what, what is being attempted here in John's vision is in essence representing the perverse, unholy marriage between the beast and the whore. The intention here is that the representation of a perverse, unholy marriage is in stark contrast to the sort of holiness that marriage represents within the Christian tradition, that it is marriage when, as we say in our actual marriage ceremony, marriage represents the union of Christ and his church. 
it's in a marriage that we see most completely and wholly represented the relationship that God wishes to have with humanity. That idea of marriage as something very holy and representative of, of kind of the closest we can get to God's total, complete perfection in the world is meant to be in contrast to this ugly, gross, perverse way that John's vision describes the world in chapter 17. So just hold all that together. I will reference the beast and the woman because it's what's used here, but just know that there's a caveat here that we should not generalize this in some kind of thoughtless, careless, abusive way to somehow characterize women as being problematic. It's kind of the same thing we see in the creation story, right? Eve happens to eat the fruit, but it's not as if women are the problem. And I know, I hope that you're all just being like, of course, duh. Um, But I just wanted to say it to make it very clear because there are moments in today's lesson where it's just gonna, the language is imperfect and limited. We just gotta kinda roll with it and go deeper and know that we're not gonna stay in the shallow part of the pool today. Okay, today's lesson is separated into two parts. The first part is Babylon the Great, and the second part is the woman and the beast. Effectively, what, we, what happens here is John sees the woman and the beast, and then the purpose and the point of the woman and the beast are interpreted for John. So we kind of have the vision and the interpretation, part one, part two. So we're going to start with part one, and we're going to go through halfway through verse six, so 6a. All right, let's read together. Just as context, we're coming off the bowls of wrath. And so John's just seen those seven bowls of wrath and the plagues. And so we pick up right here, chapter 17, verse 1. Here we go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. Whoo, this is a, this is a holy week chapter, I'll tell you what. Let's talk about where we really are in the story. We know that Revelation is not one chronological ordering of the story, right? We get these macro sections where we kind of jump back in time and then we move forward in the story and we see that repeated multiple times. And I've noted before, It's concurrent threads of a story that are being reported in a way in John's letter that make them seem on the surface to be oddly chronological. They are not. And so we are seeing another thread of this great salvation arc, right? God's salvation story in this big, massive arc. And what we see right now through the woman and the beast is that the world is and perhaps already has gone totally off the rails. The world is a big, hot mess. What John is seeing is the total, near complete depravity of the kingdoms of the earth represented by Babylon. We've noted before, Babylon holds this very specific place in the minds of Jews of the nation of Israel as being kind of this ultimate evil. But of course, John is writing in the first century. And so for John, 
and the faithful at the seven churches in Asia and beyond, the real representation of evil then is Rome. So even though we speak of Babylon, or John speaks of Babylon in the vision, John's really speaking of Rome in that kind of coded metaphorical language. Being lost, messy, depraved in the world is taken to a new level in this chapter. We are not talking about lost as in could be redeemed. We've already seen with the bulls of wrath that redemption is effectively off the table at this point. There's really no time for those who are lost to be redeemed. True or not, that's the way the story is being told. At this point, we are seeing that the people on the earth who've chosen to walk a path away from God are now reaping the horrible rewards of choosing that path. Yeah, we've talked in here before, you've heard me say that Christianity is, you know, it's not magic. What it is, is a way, right? The way of the cross, the way of Christ, the way of love, whatever we want to say. It's, it's a path. It's a journey. It's a way for us to live in the world. We call that way discipleship, right? We are disciples of Jesus. We follow him in the way. We are, in a sense, walking a particular path closer and closer to God. Some people have just begun that journey. Some people are way down the path, and the rest of us are kind of somewhere in between. Walking that path, however, means we've not walked the other path. That other path is the path away from God. Now, in Revelation and in other parts in the Bible, there is this almost dualistic acknowledgement of you either choose God or you choose Satan, right? You've got God and the devil, and it's good and evil and that sort of stuff. There is, if you will indulge me, there is a bit of a problem setting up two gods, God of good and God of evil, which is effectively what we get when we have God and Satan. Instead, I'd like us to stick within the realm, solidly on the path of there's only one God. God is all good and the absence of God is all evil. So it really is more God is here, not God is there. That absence of God is the path on which these people have been walking, right? The woman and the beast represent the end game of the path away from God. What we are seeing now at this point in Revelation, at this point in the vision, is nearing the fulfillment of the path, the path's divergence. So you've got John and the angels and God working over here for the good, and you've got the dragon and the beast and the woman and Babylon and whatever working toward the evil. John is seeing a near finishing of what the evil represents. It is horrible and is disgusting, right? We see in these opening verses that the woman committed fornication, holds the wine of the fornication of the inhabitants of the earth and that they've all become drunk um, in this golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her fornication. Um, I will stop short of postulating about what that could be, but whatever kind of grossness you think could be represented in that cup is in that cup. Nasty, horrible, disgusting, just ugh, gross. Before we go on, I want to talk about a learning from this chapter, and I'm going to hit this same note a few times today. How do we fall so far away from God? How does falling so far away from God actually happen? It'd be easy to moralize this story, this chapter 17 story, as some people are good and some people are bad. 
right? That's kind of shallow. Good people, bad people. It's very difficult to teach this chapter of Revelation with such simplicity, such a black and white understanding of the world, um, because what Revelation is describing in a simple way is something so very complex and complicated. People are not simply good or bad, right? We know this. Not a one of us here is simply good or bad. We're not all good or all bad. We are a mix of these ideas of the good and the bad, and we can be pulled into one of these paths more than the other thoughtlessly, carelessly, accidentally, if we are not intentional about the way that we live. That intentionality is really, for me, the point of a life of faith. The point of being in a faith community, of religion, of church, of of this body of Christ in the world, is really about anchoring ourselves in intentionality so that we're not accidentally doing something we don't wish to do. There's a story that I couldn't help but think of um, that I have to think most of you have heard, um, but it's this story about a Cherokee grandfather and the two wolves. So again, indulge me. I'm going to tell you this quick little story. And if you've heard it before, then just listen a second time and begin to see how this really connects with Revelation 17. So as the story goes, an old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, the grandfather said to his grandson. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger and envy and sorrow and regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The grandfather continued. The other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity and humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And he said to his grandson, the same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. Well, the grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The grandfather simply replied, the one you feed. I love this story because it reveals such a deep truth about our humanity. None of us are all one or the other. We've got this fight in us between what is good and what is evil. And feeding the good is how we become better. Feeding the good is how we walk the path of discipleship toward God. The way in which we acknowledge the danger that we could find ourselves down the wrong path is the first thing we have to do in order to move in the right direction. So I say all of this and then it kind of hits the ground for me in a particular way. Um, A few of you know, but probably most of you don't, that I've worked in ministries prior to coming to Dallas as well, um, helping people who have been caught in cycles of prostitution and abuse and even human trafficking. Um, I hope some of you know about Project Moses that we do here at St. Michael, um, who seek to help people who are caught in these cycles of abuse, prostitution, and trafficking. Um, I've done that prior to being here in Dallas, and I recall experiencing ministries in the past working with people who are caught in those cycles. And one of the things that was a profound learning for me, and this was, I don't know, 15 years ago, was what seems obvious, but perhaps misses us in sort of the moralism that we all tend to live in, And that is, when you talk about prostitution and sex trafficking and things like that, although there is certainly a category of people who are stuck and enslaved, there are many people who've actually made a choice of sorts to live a particular life in which their bodies become their currency. Sex becomes 
the way in which they function and achieve what they need in the world. This is not a life anyone really wants, but for many of the, really the women that I have met in these ministries, most of them came to a point in their life where they were on their own, disconnected, isolated, but yet someone depended on them. A sick parent, a baby they did not wish to have, you name it. They realized in those moments that they could go get a regular hourly job or they could begin selling their bodies and making a whole lot more money a whole lot faster in order to support the people that they felt responsible to support. All of this is to say, finding ourselves in situations where we do not wish to be can look very black and white in certain circumstances. When we consider what the woman represents here, we might very quickly be able to point our fingers at groups in the world that we think represent the wrongness of the world that Babylon represents here. That could be prostitutes or fornicators or people who are addicted to pornography or you name it, drugs, alcohol, on and on and on. And if we do that too quickly, what happens is we create an us and them kind of dichotomy. We become morally self-righteous and saying that they, the they, the other, has somehow done something very profoundly wrong, so much more wrong than anything we, the good, have done. I want us to resist that kind of cheap, shallow, scapegoating moralism and instead stick with the deeper idea here in Revelation that all of us in some way at some time make easy choices that lead us away from God. Now, do we jump the track and become fully evil in some way? No. But it's all about kind of leaning into habits and behaviors and choices and ways of treating others that over time lead us toward or away from God. This is very complicated stuff. And I want us in the relative safety of this Bible study to willingly open ourselves up to the vulnerability of our own imperfection, of our own wrong choices, so that we can, at that very deep human level, understand that there are people in the world, every person in the world shares disappointment, rejection, pain, heartbreak, messiness, and that it is only through God's love and grace and invitation to salvation that we can actually be healed and made whole. We're all in it together. Some of us may be a little farther down the path than others, but we're all on the path and we are all a mix of that good and that bad. So I wanna pause real quickly because I think that this is heavy and I want a chance for people to reflect and ask questions or maybe make observations because we can get a lot out of today's lesson and I don't want to just talk over everyone's own internal thoughts. So we got one question from Madeline. Um, it's a long one, give me a minute. <laughs> 
Oh, Madeline, that is so funny. So Madeline says, chapter 17 is a perfect example of what confuses her most about Revelation because it forces her to read it literally and understand all these symbols, but it's not how she reads the Bible because instead she interprets it as symbols change and as she changes. Um, she prefers specific and clearly stated positions with no interpretation required. I love that. Don't we all? Don't we kind of wish that God would just kind of knock on the door and say, can I clear something up? Let me know. Oh my gosh. So can I just tell you, this is, this happens to be a little comic that someone sent me that I thought was hilarious and I was going to put it up somewhere. I just hadn't yet. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of apropos. I don't know if you can really see it, but basically Jesus is knocking on the door and there are two things he says. So the top one says, you know, knock, knock. Hey, Debbie, it's me, the Lord. And the second one says, listen, you need to stop telling the doctor your health is in my hands. You're going to have to watch your carbs and get your A1C checked on the regular, okay? And I kind of love this little comic because there are so many times when we, out of faithfulness, wish to just say God's got it, right? Let go and let God, right? We love that kind of stuff and we put it on coffee mugs and t-shirts and it kind of feels good, but it abdicates responsibility we have to actually struggle with and make good choices. It, to Madeline's point, interpretation is hard and man, wouldn't it be nice if we could just get the straight answer. Our humanity, we are created to want a clear answer. That is why, uh, okay, hold on. I, wanna, I want to say this gracefully. I am Episcopalian. I am an Anglican Christian. Anglican Christianity is rooted in one very specific idea. We can't know everything there is to know about the nature of God, okay? That might seem obvious if any of you have ever tried to know the nature of God, but if you look at almost every other Christian branch or tradition, they tend to lean into answering every question very specifically. So there are some branches that have made it almost uh, an art form. Like if you've ever looked at the Roman Catholic Catechism, whoo, that sucker is chunky. And there are a lot of questions answered. There is this sense that if you've got a question, we can answer your question. And now it might be super complex, really thoughtful, all interconnected, very legal, and one choice here or decision there impacts a choice or decision way over here, and it's super, super complex. Then you've got other traditions that just flatly tell you exactly what you should or should not think, and how do they know? We are here struggling as honestly as possible to get the most out of scripture that we can get, fully acknowledging that God is not frozen in time in the Bible, but instead the spirit of God continues to reveal throughout all the world, right? Through people, through communities, through experiences and events, God continues to reveal, which means God is not this static entity that we have to discover like archeologists, God's alive. And there is a, there's a power in being dynamic. There is also a complexity in being dynamic, a complexity in which people feel uncomfortable because they'd really like to know the answer is totally solid. The only real solid answer is God is real and true. God loves us. God wants us to love him back. And God wants us to love each other. That's it. Everything else flows from there. 
Our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, has a great line. If it's not about love, it's not about God. That's about as much as you can nail down Anglican theology. Now, there are Anglicans out there who will tell you otherwise, but they're wrong. Being Episcopalian is about welcoming the dynamism and the engagement with the Spirit in the living God in a way that means sometimes we learn some stuff about what we were doing that was incomplete. And we have got to move more and more toward being complete. For some people, change equals mistake or admission of guilt or something that, or it could just be fundamental, we don't like change. And so whenever we try to do anything that helps us to grow closer and closer to God, that means changing things that we have done in the past. People react and they bristle and they dig their heels in. And that's just not what it means to be Episcopalian. And that can feel unsettled and uncertain. And yet, I think, I hope, that we are all very confident that God's work is not done. God's work through us is not done. God's work through the church and in the world is not done. And it is in community, in the diversity, beautiful communities that we create, that we help to understand, help one another to understand what God is doing more and more completely as we move closer and closer down the path toward God. Ha. Howard asks, how does God's judgment play into what I'm saying? Is the judgment essential self, essentially self-imposed? Is God's judgment essentially self-imposed? Dang, Howard. What Howard's really asking is if judgment is ultimately dependent on our choices, do we hold our judgment in our own hands? Ah, uh, yeah, yes. Yep, I'm good with that. Um, God loves us. God has sought to reveal divine truth to the world throughout time. Christians in particular need to be very comfortable with saying that God revealed truth before Jesus. God has continued to reveal truth after Jesus. For me, and I think this jives with Anglican theology pretty clearly, in the person of Jesus, we see the Christ. We see the fullest, most complete revelation of God's truth. Yes. But that doesn't mean that in Christ, God's revelation is limited to only that moment. I mean, obviously, we've got plenty in what we call the Old Testament where God revealed truth to and through people and the creation. Following Jesus, we see that the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, and it is that Spirit of God that enables and equips and pushes us out into the world to be God's witnesses in profound, amazing ways. God's work does not begin and end with Christ. And so what we know of God is that God is grace-filled. God's love is the most important quality of God's nature. And so God wants us so badly that we can have infinite chances to choose to love God back. How many times do you forgive someone who's wronged you? Seven times? No, no. 
77 times, right? This idea that it is never ending. God's opportunity for grace and salvation is constant and complete and never ending. Judgment is a mystery. We see a vision here in Revelation of judgment. We're going to get there. We need to get to the second part of this. Um, as, as I noted earlier, Anglican Christian, right, an Episcopalian, I'm very comfortable saying I'm not so sure how judgment's going to work out. I don't know how we can predict judgment. I don't know what God will even do in judgment. I mean, is it possible that God at some point is going to say, you know what? Human imperfection is so profoundly problematic that everybody's coming. Could God do that? Of course he could. He is God. God can do whatever he wants. Is that what seems to be indicated in Scripture? Maybe. Maybe not. There's a whole lot of judgment in the way that Jesus' story is told, in the way that the apostles plant churches in visions like Revelation. We could, I think, faithfully say those good people were doing the best they could, inspired by God, of course, and yet still incomplete. I'm comfortable with that. I'm also comfortable saying we don't know because we are imperfect. We, only, we see through a glass that is cloudy and that is unfocused, and we will at some point see clearly. We can only see so much through the cloudy lenses of this life. And so rather than spend too much effort wondering when's Jesus coming back, do we see the signs of his return? What's the judgment going to be? Or even worse, judging other people. How about we stick with love? And I, you've heard me say this so many times in sermons and Bible studies. We don't like that answer because we don't want to be told just to love people. We want to be told who to love and how to love and when to love and when is love limited. And if somebody does something bad, do we not get to love them now or what? Nope. It is pretty clear in the Gospels, pretty clear, love, period, the end. We just have to struggle. <laughs> okay, let's jump into the part two. Keep asking these questions. I think they are excellent. Um, and I do think it helps us take something that is so, you know, Revelation can be so weird and incomprehensible and it helps us to land the revelation plane, right? To really put the legs on this beast, bad choice of words, um, on this complexity of a vision so that it actually can inform us and help us now. And it's not just some weirdness that we read and just kind of toss off, right? It's kind of like in the last chapter when John had this little moment where he said, wake up, you know, stick with me, stay with us. It's easy for us to read through Revelation and just kind of go, it's like the Peanuts teacher, right? As we read Revelation, we f I find that the fantastic descriptions almost begin to sound like wah, 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 wah. And if that happens, stop. Because it's good. It's good stuff. And it just takes a bit of energy and effort to get from the fantasy and the massive, incredible vision into that deeper truth of the vision itself that informs and help us live better lives now. Okay, part two, let's keep it moving. This is the woman and the beast. This is the interpretation of what John is seeing. So we're going, I'm going to jump through a few verses. We're not going to read a big passage like normal um, because I think we have to parse this out. So we're going to start with Verse 6b, kind of right in the middle where I paused, we're going to pick up there and go through verse 7. So, verse 6b, when I saw her, I was greatly amazed. But the angel said to me, why are you so amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So, we're going to go through this section kind of verse by verse-ish 
and try to unpack what is really being said here. So here we go, verse eight. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be amazed when they see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Stop there. One of Revelation's key descriptions of God, we know very well from our liturgy, is God who was, who is, and who is to come, right? Christ, who was, who is, who is to come. We say that every week in our liturgy, in our communion service. Um, This really is anchored in Revelation, this idea that God is total and complete and before and after and during and now, and you know, it's past, present, future. Here in in verse eight, we have the beast being described similarly, but with one very important distinction. You see at the end of verse 8, the beast was, is not, and is to come. Interesting. So God who was, is, and is to come is now compared to the beast who was, who is not, and who is to come. Who was and is not and is about to be here is important because As we see in verse 8, the inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, will be amazed when they see this beast. What John's vision is unpacking for us is that the beast has many of the trappings of power and authority of God. When the people who are not living on God's path see this beast, they will be amazed because the beast, in a sense for them, will become like God. That beast will become their God because they've not chosen the path moving toward the real God. So I'll say that another way. We all have this fork in the road where we choose the path of God or we choose the path away from God. And the people who have not chosen God are in a sense kind of lost And they're victims of whatever they see on the earth. And what they will see in this beast is something amazing. They will then yoke themselves to this beast who appears to be God, but is not God. And we see in verse 8, the beast was, is not now, and is about to ascend and go to destruction. This beast, for a moment, is going to be like God. As that magnet of Godness attracts people on the earth, they will follow the beast into their own destruction. Let's press on. Verse 9. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Pause. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There is not anybody in the first century who would have read that line and not understood that John's vision was absolutely about Rome. Any of us who've studied Western civilization knows that Rome was founded by Romulus on seven hills. Romulus actually founded the city of Rome on the Palatine Hill, and there are six other hills in Rome. And if you go to Rome today, you can actually walk up these hills. They're, they're identifiable. Um, Rome is a city on seven hills. Here we've got a woman seated on a beast with seven heads, and they're the seven mountains. So there is an absolute line. Like the dots are connected. Babylon is Rome, and that's made very clear here. Let's keep going. Very end of verse 9 and verse 10. Also, they are seven kings, of whom five have fallen, one is living, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. Okay, I want to repeat again. Please resist making Revelation literal. 
people have tried throughout history to match up these kings with emperors of Rome. It's not a secret that the vision is about Babylon, but it's really about Rome in the first century. And so when you see that there's supposed to be seven kings, but five have fallen, there's one that's coming in the seventh, people have tried to say, okay, okay, so do we start with Augustus who came after Julius Caesar, or do we fast forward a little bit? Because if we start with Augustus, we're not gonna quite get to where John was when he was writing this letter, and maybe it's about Nero, or could it be Domitian, whatever. Don't do any of that, okay? This is not meant to be literal, this is meant to be metaphorical, and Seven is a symbolic holy number. What is being set up in the second half of chapter 17 is what we call the Antichrist. We have in this vision set up God and the anti-God. The beast represents so much of God, but is exactly opposite of God, the anti-God. And so here we see that the kings are moving toward this complete holy number seven, but that the completion is a perversion of God's true completion. I know that is so weird and it is hard to hold in our minds, but when John speaks of seven kings. I don't want you to try and count the kings. Instead, it's symbolic, seven. The beast is coming to a, a seeming completion that is exactly anti-God. Verse 11, we see, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. We see John in this vision repeat himself to make sure we know, as anyone who's reading this letter would know, that although this beast might look so good and be so attractive, that what actually happens is that the beast is leading the people toward destruction. Okay, I have... I'm sorry, with our technical tr troubles this morning, I know we are right at about 11.30. I've not finished this chapter. There are some really good things about this chapter that I wish to finish with you, but I do want to respect your time and I apologize that we had a little bit of trouble and started five minutes late. Um, the woman and the beast will ultimately be destroyed. Or the woman will be destroyed, devoured at the end of this chapter. It's really important stuff. And so we're going to stop here for today, but next week, first week of Easter, we're going to take up the very end of chapter 17 and go into chapter 18. It's good and it is totally worthwhile. So I wish you all a wonderful Holy Week. Do join us during our worship services, 7 p.m., the special one at noon on Good Friday, and then of course, Easter Sunday, in-person sunrise at 6.30, online 9 and 11, and then in person for communion and a blessing afternoon after you filled up on your Easter brunches and lunches. I hope to see you all in person sometime this weekend, and otherwise I will be keeping you in my prayers. Please keep me in yours as well, and happy early Easter. See you all next week. Bye.